Um, I'm Bill Stevens, one of the pastors here, and I am uh, so glad that you guys are all here today. It's, it's, it's fun. We've had a lot of things happen in this last week, some, some really, um, some, 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 some uh, groundbreaking stuff that's happened both here in the church and in my own personal life. Here in the church, you guys, here's what you need to know. When Jim and I got started with this church, the two of us looked at our own gifts and thought, what can we each give to this to help make this church, uh, to make this church go? And one of the things we discovered was that Jim is really, really good at taking on a project and working his tail off and finding really quality people around him to help him and to make something happen. And, and, uh, and, and a couple of years ago, we came to you guys with this idea of, of building a church that we, we said we, we weren't going to be able to be in this place for a long time, but that we needed to, to start looking to build a church. But we knew that was a project that was going to be a, take a Herculean effort, that we would have to, to recognize what the Lord is doing and do everything we can in our power to help make it happen. And what you, what you might not know is Jim has had to learn a new language in doing this. Jim has had to learn the language language of PUDZs and, and easements and, um, and how, much, how, how many inches is a sewer pipe and what angle should you have it at. And he's had to learn a whole new language of stuff. And he has dedicated time to making that happen. This last Thursday, he preached a sermon in a sense. This last Thursday, he went before the planning commission for what we would call maybe hurdle three of six or seven hurdles that we have to do before we can put a shovel in the ground. This was the, this was the time before the planning commission where you say, here's all the infrastructure stuff, all the engineering stuff, all the stuff that we didn't learn one iota about in seminary. In seminary, you do not take a class on easements. You just don't. But Jim has learned that for us and surround himself with really great people to help him in that. And on Thursday night, they presented for 90 minutes to the planning commission and they voted four to one. The one person said, we love, I love a set. There's just some technicalities in this. Four to one in favor of us taking the, uh, taking the next step towards putting a shovel into the ground. So that was a big moment for us, the church. Big moment. And, and it is one that I think that, you know, someday we're going to be sitting in that new building and we're going to enjoy that new building and the community is going to enjoy the community center that we're trying to build for our community. Everyone's going to enjoy that. And behind all of that was, was a, a couple of lawyers that gave us a ton of pro bono work and a, an engine, a civil engineer that did it so well and some great and some people that, that advised us really well and Jim who committed a ton of time to it. So, um, so that's, that was all, that's all behind the scenes to make this stuff happen. So I'm thankful for my partner in doing this and Jim and what he's doing, and because and I, I, I'll let him figure out angles, because uh, you guys know me with angles. I don't really know him as well as he does, so he, he's got the angles to know where to put the sewer pipe. So um, for me personally, I told some of you guys last week that, um, that, that Jackie and I are dealing with some stuff at home, um, that, we, that it was Jackie and I and our daughter Abby, and, and in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be seven of us at home. It was three, and then it's seven, because my son Jack got engaged, and he decided for his senior year in college, he's going to move home and, uh, to save some money. And then his fiance said, my, my living situation fell through, so I'm, can I come and live with you guys too? And we said, sure, why not? And then my daughter graduated from Whitworth. And so she's coming home, and she's going to live at home for a year to pay off some student loans. And then her boyfriend was going to get in at the School of Mines. It was her boyfriend, and now it's her fiancé. 
So, so, so now, 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 I'm hyperventilating. Now, we got two weddings next summer. Um, we've got seven people in our house. We've got two engaged couples. Jackie and I are making out a lease that they have to sign. One of the rules on the lease is, is public displays of affection. If you are kissing, if you're making out on the couch, here's our rule. Jackie and I get to do whatever we see you guys doing. So if you're going to make out on the couch, we're going to make out on the couch. And if you're going to make us feel uncomfortable with that, we're going to make you feel real uncomfortable with that. So... So, uh, so that's our life this next year. Man, am I going to be checking in with you guys about how that's going to go. So um, anyway, let's get on to what we're talking about here. On your mark, get set. Here's what's happening. We're talking next week about go. Jim and I have been talking through what the vision for Ascent will be for 2018, 2019. And we are so excited about it. We feel like the Lord is placed on the heart of, of Ascent and the heartbeat of Ascent. And we feel like God is saying, okay, come on, let's go. Let's share the, the generosity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. There's a generosity that's laced through the good news of Jesus. And let's share that generosity in a surprising way to our community, to our neighbors. It's time for us as a church to stand up and go and, t- and, and surprise people with who Jesus is. And so, so we're, we're, we're going to talk about this next week. The two of us are going to get up here in front, and that's what we'll, we'll share, is, is all about that vision. But in order to take that step to go, we got to get on your mark and get set. we got to get ready to go. What's that look like for our heart and our mind, for our soul to be ready to respond to whatever the Lord is calling us to do? What's that look like for you and me in our life? Well, what we want to do is last week and this week, we're just taking a look at, at, the, at the disciples and the people that responded to Jesus when he said go, because he said it all the time. He said, all right, come on, it's time to go. And a lot of times they just responded. And what was going on in their hearts and minds to allow them to respond the way that they did? That's what we're going to take a closer look at today. Um, and, and in particular, we're going to look at when Jesus walked by a, 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 some fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so he, here's where we're going. We're going Matthew chapter 4, and it's verse 18 through 22. It says this, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. As he went from there, he saw two, old, two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in their boat with their, their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So... So we read something like that. I don't know if you guys are at all like me, but when I read something like that, sometimes I get discouraged. I'll get discouraged with it because I'll read it and I'll just go, I don't think, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could just immediately leave it all. Leave the nets, leave dad who's sitting there in the, in the, in the boat with them and just go. What, what do you got in store for me, God? I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna do it. And that's... Sometimes it's as discouraging to read it because you're just going, I couldn't do it. 
I just picture, I picture working in Spokane my, in, in high school and college. My dad owned a carpet store, and, and he, we would have to roll the, the carpet up and wrap it all up and go haul it up on our shoulders out to someone's car and, and tie it to their car and act like we know what kind of knots to put on there and, and just go, yeah, this should hold, and we have no idea if it will. I'm making up knots and stuff. But that was my, my life was in the warehouse at the carpet store that my dad owned, and so I was cutting vinyl and doing that. If I, if in one moment, someone came walking up to me and said, Bill, come on, we're going. God wants us to go. If I turned to my dad, if he's standing there and a customer's standing there, I'm going, Dad, here's the knife, here's the tape to tape it all up. You just wrap it up, tape it up, and throw it out there in their car. What would my dad have said? My dad would have looked at me like, uh, yeah, right. You're going to do this as soon as this job is done. And then you'll go. Well, it's, it's, that's me too. I, I, well, as soon as the job is done, then I'm going to go. These guys just dropped everything and went. What was going on that allowed them to do that? Well, what I want to do is I want to add a little, there's some more texture to this story that I want to make sure that we understand. See, here's the deal, and this is what, some, what we get as you're reading through the Newer Testament, and you especially read through the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. These four guys set out to write about the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, here's the deal. All four of them didn't write the exact same thing. All four of them didn't write about the exact same stuff. One person focused a little bit more on one part of his life, and one person focused on a little bit more of another part of his life. John spent half of his gospel writing about the last week of Jesus. He, he just said, man, this is what we're going to need to know. And he wrote about the last week of Jesus. Luke, he wrote, and, and part of his narrative was the very beginning of Jesus' life. So when, you, when you're at Christmas and you're listening to the Christmas story and the Christmas narrative of Jesus, you're going to read where most of the time we're reading out of Luke because he focused a lot of attention on that. So they each focused on some, some different things. And then when you put those stories together, you see the complete narrative. Well, when you read this one, you're going, okay, so Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee and these guys are on a boat and they just get up and leave. But as you look at the, the other narratives, when you look at what, what John wrote and what, what Mark wrote and what Luke wrote in all of that, you start to go, oh, there's more to this story. See, in John chapter 1, we realize that the, Jesus has, has already had an encounter with these guys. Jesus has, has met these guys. He first started talking to these guys. He met Peter and Andrew and James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus. He met a bunch of those guys in John chapter 1. And so he's, he's, they started, and they're going, now, this is interesting, and I'm intrigued by this. And I'm tracking with you, Jesus. And then, in chapter, beginning of chapter 2 of John, he goes to the Sea of Gal... I mean, he goes to, to, to Cana, and he changes water into wine, and these guys were there. That was this first miracle, was changing the water. They, they ran out of wine, he changed his water into wine, and they, they were all there watching. And so they're seeing it, and they're inspired by it, and they're tracking with it, and they're saying, this is really good for me, to keep gathering more information about this. See, that was the beginning for those disciples. And that was the, their first thing was, I'm just, I'm tracking with you. Now, you guys, when we look at it in our life, there are a lot of people in this room right now that are right in that place. We are going, I'm tracking with you. I'm learning more about that. That's why I'm here. I'm intrigued by this. This is really good for me to hear this. And that's all really good stuff. 
And you want to be in in the place where you're going, I'm being inspired by this. This is good for me. Now, Jesus would see that. And you know what he'd say to us? He'd say, man, I, I love you. I love you. That's the first thing he said. He says that about everything to us. We always got to remember that. The first thing he's saying is, I love you. But he's going, but I want you to be careful with this. You could go your whole life coming to church, and maybe some of you have for 20 years, 30 years, and you've been saying, this is good for me. But here's the, the danger in that. See, when you start with, it's good for me, this is good for me, you start to go, you know what? God, what else is good for me? And, and how, what else can you give to me? And, and without you even knowing it, you start to get to this point where you're going, God exists for me. And if we come, come to that conclusion that God exists for me, then anything that happens that isn't what you would want to have happen, you'd go, what kind of a God would allow that to happen to me? And I'm sure many of us have asked that question. You've just gone, God, what? what? This seemed very good for me, and now this situation is not good for me. Where did you go? What happened to you? And we ride that roller coaster because we unknowingly stayed in this place to the point that we've concluded, God, I, I, God is here for me, that I'm at the center. There's a guy named Craig Rochelle, a pastor in Oklahoma, that wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. I love it. It's, it's, he's, a, he's a pastor and writer, and lo- this is a great book to, 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 to buy if you want to get a book that talks just about real-life stuff, because he's going, you know, I call myself a Christian, but why don't I pray? I call myself a Christian, but why don't I trust God? And, and so it's real, just real questions. It's, it's believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. Well, one of the things that he writes about in here is he says there was a point that he had this just kind of this vision in his own life. And he said, I found myself thinking about these lines and I drew a line in the sand and I drew a second line and a third line. And I drew this line in the sand and he said, he said I realized in this moment that I believe in God. Look at what he said. He said, I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to benefit from it. He's going, man, so much of my life, I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to benefit from it. I'll take on what God can give to me. God is here to supply my needs. God is here for me. And that's it. And so, so, so he started realizing how much of his life he's filtering through that and how dangerous that became as he was riding this roller coaster. He said this, and tell me if you, tell me if you relate to what, he, to what he says here. He says, I felt God existed for me rather than I for him. If he'd do what I thought he should, I'd trust him more. If he'd come through for me, I'd give him more of my life. If he made my life better and pain-free, I'd believe him more passionately. But any time God didn't meet my expectations, we had a problem. God created me in his image. I'd return the favor and created him in mine. Sound eerily familiar for all of us at one time or another? Huh. Are we creating him in my image for me? See, Paul 
one of the writers of one of the writers who spent most of his time writing a lot of the New Testament to, through these letters to people, he talks about this because he spent his life going, I'm starting to realize that I am not at the center. He is. And this is what he said. He said, God raised him from the dead and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. All authority on heaven and earth had been given to him. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. See, I would read that when I'm in this place and it would just roll right over and I wouldn't even think anything of it. But what Paul is saying right there is not just that Christ is the center of the church, but he is at the center. Everything, all authority, all power belongs to him and he is at the center and I am not. And, we, and, and coming to that conclusion is important for us as our hearts and minds are ready is going, wait a minute, I am not at the center. He is. He doesn't exist for me. I exist for him. And I want to serve him. And see, and what, what Craig realizes is, you know, there was a second line then. And that's when we start to make this commitment. And we say, yes, I do want to follow you. Unless, yes, you are at the center. And I am going to give you my life to an extent. I'm going to give you my life. Well, almost all of it. I'm going I'm to give you my time. Well, almost all of it. I'm going to give you my talent. Almost all of it. I'll give you my, tra- well, almost all of it. I'll give you my, I'll give you my, my uh, all, all of the things that I find most important. Well, almost all of it. I will change for you. Well, I'll change almost all of it. I'll kind of hold on to a little bit. And so we find ourselves in this place that Craig would say is line two, and it's, and it's this. I believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to contribute comfortably. I believe it enough to contribute comfortably. Oh my gosh, you guys, how long can we stay in this spot? If it isn't this one, it's this one. I believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to contribute comfortably. I will, yes, you can have this, all of the excess, (laughs) but not the primary. Yes, you can have all of this worry. Well, I'm going to hold on to some of it because I don't fully trust to give that away. Uh, it's, it's almost, almost all of it. You guys, I, I call this the frustrated almost. I, this is our, the frustrated almost of my life. And, and, I, and I live in that all the time. And the reason why I call it the frustrated almost is because there's so many times that we're going, I, I know that I got to surrender this fully, but I just don't. I hold on to some of it and I'm just frustrated with myself in it. Or I, I'll give up this much, but I hold on to something and I'm just frustrated in it. And the next thing you know, you're living your life. This, these are those of us in the room that would, that would, when we look at our faith, we look at it and we just go, yeah, it's, it's okay, but I just know that I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not hitting the mark that I want to hit. And so many of us are in that place where you come to church and you just go, you know, this is good and this is good for me, but ultimately it's about God and I'm going to give it all, but I'm going to give almost all of it. And now you just live in this kind of just frustrated state because you know inside, 
I need to surrender this fully, but I just don't for some reason. There's, a, there's an author, a mentor of mine in, in, when I was in college, and as my faith was just being shaped, a guy named Tim Hansel. Um, he died in 2009, and, um, but when he, was, when he was living and he was writing, I was reading all of his stuff, and man, it shaped me. And the reason why it shaped me is Tim would write from this, that all of his books from the same perspective. It was, it was, man, Jesus flat loves us. And as we dive in fully to that love, not just dipping our toes in, but dive in fully to that love, we can live the adventure that he has for us. He calls it the hidden adventure. And he's going, we have an adventure that, uh, that we can soak this love in and now live this thing out and experience this, this passionate adventure for him. And I, re- I would read that stuff, and it was really important for me to read it because growing up Catholic, and now I'm not saying this about all Catholics, I'm just saying this was my experience. In my experience growing up Catholic, it was about just going to church, and I just had to go to church, and it was just kind of checking the box, and I just got to do this. And then, and then I'm reading this stuff, and I'm in college and post-college, and it's about, it's about diving into the love of Jesus so much that we live the hidden adventure that, that, that comes with that. And so, so Tim, was, Tim would write these, write these books. He wrote, he, at one point, he was a huge adventure guy, and he, he, he was climbing here in Colorado, and he fell down a crevasse, and his spine was crunched, and he spent the rest of his life in chronic pain. But he still wrote a, a book called You Gotta Keep Dancing, and he's going, because there's still this unbelievable joy that I can have even in the midst of chronic pain for the rest of my life. I had a chance to go sit with him one day in a cabin at a retreat, and I'm walking. And I'm, 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 watching him in this debilitating pain and he's and he's but he's sitting there going bill man you got to choose joy you got to choose joy even in this because there's a hidden adventure in choosing that joy and diving in fully and that's what that's what he so so he writes about that stuff well listen to what he writes about when it comes to um to this almost this frustrated almost he calls it almost christianity okay um let me grab my chair so I can sit and read this to you guys. Okay. He says this. He says, I realized how many times I had been satisfied to come home in the evening, recognizing the impossibility of the task, but somehow condoning my posture within it by saying, I was almost your person today, Lord. I would pat myself on the back with the rationalization that I was at least better than some. Unknowingly, I had allowed my life to settle into what I now call almost Christianity. Because of the difficulty of the task, because of my fear of accountability to others, because of my defensiveness and unwillingness to live up to the demands of Scripture and of God himself, I had slowly and imperceptibly become very good at excusing myself. Then I thought, what would it have been like if Jesus had done the same thing? What if God had almost revealed himself in Jesus Christ? What if Christ were almost born and almost lived and almost died? What if he would have said, I ask and it will almost be given to you. Seek and you will almost find. Knock and it will almost be opened unto you. What if he would have said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will almost give you rest. And what if Jesus had told his disciples, whoever so loses his life for my sake will almost find it. My almost Christianity took on a much different light. I realized how many times I had played the game of being, uh-oh, uh, uh Sorry, my, my computer froze. Uh, I realized how many times I played the game of being one of Jesus' almost disciples. I recalled how many times I had prayed almost believing and walked through my days as if he were almost risen. It was not a question of theology. It was a question of lifestyle. 
whether or not I had a lifestyle that could match what I said I believe, whether or not, as some have said, I could walk my talk. Man, do you guys see why this would be called the frustrating almost? (laughs) That I'm almost, I feel like I'm on the edge. I feel like I'm right on the edge and I'm just going, God, I know that I got to give my family to you and the changes and transitions that we're going through. And I'm almost going to do that. I know I got to give you the finances with student loans and weddings coming up. And I'm almost going to do that. I know, I know you want me to, to search my life and those things that would, would pull me away from you. And I'm almost going to do that. And Jesus is saying, one, what's the first thing he's saying to me? Bill, man, I love you. I love you. And then he is saying, now, recognizing that love, trust me. Trust me to give it to me. Trust me to surrender it to me. Trust me with your time. Trust me with your talent. Trust me with your treasure. Trust me with the things you've got to change. Trust me with the things that you don't know if you have the power to change. Trust me. And see, and that's what Craig is saying is the third line. The third line is I believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to give my life to it. Paul writes about this in Galatians 2.20. He says, Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central because he starts to dig into why is it that he's holding on to that stuff. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I'm no longer driven to impress God. That's not going to do anything for me is trying to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to back down on that. See, when Craig wrote this, he said he, he was, he was, it was 15 years into him preaching into a, a church, one of the biggest churches in America. But he found himself on his knees crying saying how much of my life is lived in, in the, my, that first line or that second line. And he just says, I have to surrender this, surrender this church, surrender this job, surrender this marriage. I have to surrender this and dive in fully to that adventure that it is to live my life for him. See, see, that's where Jesus wants our hearts and minds and souls to get to. Wants us to get to that point that we can fully surrender that to him. When we look back at that passage, the passage we first looked at, the one of Jesus, of Jesus going to the Sea of Galilee and these guys, you got to recognize that there were, there were storms that were happening in that time. There was a spiritual storm that was, that was brewing as these guys were on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just finished, he was, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and Satan's temptation to Jesus was telling him, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to die on the cross. You don't have to rise from the grave. You are God. Satan's temptation 
telling Jesus, don't go through this. You don't have to because Satan knew that when Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead and conquers death, he knows there's no more separation between us and God. He knows that when we put our weight down on that, there's no separation. Death doesn't get the last say and that life wins and it's life for eternity. So Satan knows if, when, he, when Jesus did not give in to the temptation, he's losing the battle. And so where does Satan turn? He turns to us. And he's going, all right, then I'm going to convince them that this, you don't need this. You don't need to hear about this. You don't need to dive in. So there was a spiritual battle in that moment at the Sea of Galilee. There was a religious battle in that moment because John the Baptist comes onto the scene. He says, all of you religious people, get ready because it's about to get turned on on its head. All of your rules and regulations are going to be replaced with love and grace and mercy. All of your religion is going to be replaced with relationship. It's going to get turned on its head. Get ready for that. So there was a religious battle that was, that was about to take place. And there was a political battle. Caesar Antipas was in charge. And he wanted to make sure that nobody was rising up and there were no other power rising up above him. So Caesar Antipas was, was looking around for those groups and was going to try to eliminate any of those groups. People would say Jesus re- got away from all that to the Sea of Galilee, but are you kidding me? Caesar Antipas's capital city was Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes right there in the middle of a political storm, a religious storm, and a spiritual storm. And he looks at those guys and he says, guys, it's time. Drop your nets and follow me. And he's looking at us and he's saying the same thing. It's time. It's time to surrender. Now, we can fall back. We'll fall back all the time. Jim and I talk about how that moment that we started this church, there was this, that we felt like, we, gosh, we, we didn't know if we had any, life, any, any health insurance. We didn't know if we were going to get a paycheck. And we're going, my gosh, Lord, there's nowhere else to turn but to you. It's like the disciples are saying, where else would we go? We're going, where else are we going to go? We've got nothing but this. And so, so we felt like we're right there in this moment. We're surrendering it all. But how many times over the last five years we found ourselves going right back to the the very beginning and say, God, we surrendered this to you. What do you what, shouldn't this be easier for us? Shouldn't this be easier to, to find that place and to, did it, dig a, to put a shovel in the ground? Shouldn't this be easier at home in the midst of sacrifice that we're doing here? And all of a sudden we're finding ourselves right back in that place where we're going, this is for me. You exist for me. And we find ourselves right there again. We will, we will fall all along this all the time. The conduit for getting it to, for going from one to the next, the conduit to get to this place of complete surrender is not obligation. It's not guilt. Those things you'll ne- will never get here if that's what we're being motivated by. You know what the conduit is? It's joy. It's joy because when we start to realize this is all about this relationship and the more I'm falling in love with this person of God, the more joy I have in that, the more I move towards it's not about me. Holy smokes, it's about him. It's about this relationship. And then you go, and you know what? And I don't even have to surrender. I don't have to live in the almost, in the frustrated almost, but I'm gonna live in the freedom of the sacrifice that that I would make because I wanna live here in the love that I have for you, in the love that you have for me. And from here, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do I need to leave behind? 
What's next? I'm ready. The disciples knew it's time. Zebedee in that boat knew it's time. Some of you parents, you know that, that you got to see your kids and go, it's time to let them go. Jesus is saying it's time. I think for each one of us, he's looking at us, he's going, it's time. Father, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to recognize that. I pray that you would help us to, to, um, to recognize where, while it is so good to want to keep learning more from you, and, and to, to say, this is good for me. God, help us in that to step towards life about you and for you, and that it's not all about me. And God, I pray that, that when we step into this place of almost, I'm almost there, I'm almost ready. God, help us to know that, that no, the time is now, and that you give us the power to relinquish and the power to stand up, and the power to surrender. We pray that you would help us to recognize that power so we can step into this place where we recognize it is you. And I want to live for you. I want to follow you. I want to live in that joy for you. I want to live in the hidden and the seen adventure of following you. And from that place, tell us where to go and what to do. Because, Lord, we will do it out of our joy for you. It is in your name we pray. Amen.